Hello and welcome to Lodcast, a show for in-house lawyers and professionals around the world. My name is Mark Dodd and I'm the Head of Market Insights at LOD, a pioneer of alternative legal services. In this episode, we explore how in-house legal leaders can show the value of their legal department. And to dive a bit deeper into the topic, we speak with Sterling Miller, a luminary in the in-house world and recent author of a book on this very topic. Now, this is part two of our interview with Sterling. So if you haven't listened to part one of the interview, where we talk about leading through times of uncertainty and change, I highly recommend you hit pause on this and go and listen to part one. In today's episode on demonstrating value, Sterling warns against the over-reliance on metrics, the superpower of storytelling, the importance of having a plan to improve, and remembering the mission of the legal team. One final note, at the end of the show, after the outro music, I've included a bit more of my chat with Sterling about some of his non-legal interests, including slow cooking and the NFL. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back, Sterling. This is this is part two of the podcast series. And today's episode is all about how legal departments can show their value. And now this is a big topic. We know it's a very important topic to a lot of in-house leaders and GCs in particular. So your most recent book published by the American Bar Association is titled Showing the Value of the Legal Department more than just a cost center. Now, demonstrating the value is part of the job of the in-house counsel, but it doesn't come naturally, I don't think. Can we start with why you wrote this book? Sure. I started getting questions. Well, as I write the blog, I get a lot of feedback from readers, which I love, especially when I hear from people outside of the United States, just bring a completely different, fresh viewpoint to things. So I find those emails and, and comments in the blog to be re- incredibly helpful. And I would say circa 2017, 2018, I started getting a lot of questions from people about how do I show the value of what the legal department is bringing to the business? And I think what was driving that were businesses starting to just review operations generally doing, you know, they're always looking at costs. And eventually over time, they came to the legal department and where maybe the legal department in the past was viewed as special, different. Now it was more as well, just another appendage to the business. So what, what are you guys doing? What's the value? Why are, why should we keep you around? Why should we why should we pay for all these high-priced lawyers? And in-house general counsel or deputy general counsel feeling like they're caught in the headlights without knowing what to do. So almost this panic of, well, how am I going to do this? And I started sending them, well, here, here are a couple of ideas. Here are some things that I did because I had that question asked of me in some ways, not quite as bluntly as that, but that was really what they were getting at is let's show us what's going, what, what is the legal department accomplishing, which is really a sideways (laughs) way of asking what value are you generating? And as I started answering questions, I thought, well, I probably have enough for a blog on this question. So I wrote a blog about these are the 10 things you need to do to show value. And that was one of the most popular blogs that I have written. I got a lot of feedback on that. 
and started getting asked to speak on this topic at conferences for in-house legal departments. And then I realized, well, this is probably a great book idea because there's a lot to say. And there's a lot that I think lawyers, in-house lawyers miss when it comes to answering that question. That was very clear to me when I was talking with them is that they're, they're focused on one aspect and there are multiple aspects that really need their attention. And writing books, I love doing that. So there you go. Where's a book? Plus the ABA was bugging me to write another book. <laughs> so I had, had to satisfy the beast that is the American Bar Association. Now that's your, that's your third legal book now. And yes, uh, third. We're gonna maybe at the end of the show we'll get into your two non-legal books. But before we do that, now obviously condensing your new book, Showing Value, is not possible in a short podcast episode. But did you want to provide listeners potentially a bit of a whistle stop tour of what you go through in the book? Yes. I think the the interesting, the most interesting part of the book, at least to me, is the very first chapter where I write about the evolution of the in-house counsel position because the questions around value and the questions around being a strategic partner all tie back to how the job has evolved over the last 30 30 or 40 years. When I came out of law school, going in-house was considered a dead-end job. You went there if you couldn't hack it at a law firm or you were ready to retire and you wanted to put your feet up. It was very, like a, I don't know, just very boring, very much the same. But over time, that obviously has changed. I'm not going to go through all the different reasons, but I walk you through the different stages of how did we get here to where now legal has a seat at the table. People are curious about the value. And people ask you that question. It's not always negative. What's the value of the legal department? It could just be because they want to know what are all the great things that you're doing. You tend to want to hide from that question. I say you need to step right up and be proud about the answer to that question. So getting through the evolution, then how do you market the legal department? You have to be a marketer of what you're doing. You have to tell people these are the accomplishments and here's why they matter. And lawyers are terrible at that because there's a natural inclination, at least in my experience, to not want to be seen as boastful. It's not boastful. You have a product, you need people to understand the value. The best way to do that is to market to them. And so I go through a lot of different ways that you can do that. Number two, well, I guess number three, because first there was the evolution, is getting the business to love you. How do you get the business to want to work with the legal department? I know the last podcast, we talked about soft skills, approachability was one of the things we talked about, flexibility, being practical, all of those things. The business, if you, if you write the most incredible legal analysis in the world, the business, the business is not going to have really one clue about your legal work. They don't do that. As far as they know, you could be on the Supreme Court or you could be on TV court. They don't know because that's not where they that's not where they live. But they can know is Sterling approachable? Is he practical? Is he flexible? Is he giving us advice that we can actually use? And if you do those things, the business is going to go, you know what? I had a perception about the legal department 
that is very different than the reality. I love these folks. They're great. They're helpful. I want them to, you know, to pull them in closer. So that is marketing. There's getting the business to love you. And then lastly, and this is where I think people miss the boat, it, are the metrics. And most people, when they're asked to show the value, they come to me with, well, here's our, here are our metrics. You certainly need numbers. You need to be able to show KPIs, key performance indicators, or, or whatever the business is asking for. But you can't leave out the perception issue, which is how does the business perceive the legal department despite whatever the numbers might show. So there's a qualitative approach and a quantitative approach. And what I do is I walk through all those different areas. I have an appendix on just a dozen pages of KPIs and numbers, but that's not really the focus of the book. The focus on the book, I would say, is more around how do I market? How do I partner? How do I get the business to really love the legal department? And if you do those things over time, not overnight, but over time, the business is going to recognize that they have an incredibly valuable resource and they're going to want it to use it. They're going to want to keep it. And if you're really lucky, they're going to want to build it out. And I talk about how do you take all this to ask for more resources because you can, but you have to build that credibility up first. You have to build that positive perception up. And if all you're going to do is throw some, some numbers and spreadsheets up, that's okay, but you're not, you're not going to solve the problem. You're just going to touch a little bit of it. I think that's super interesting because I do think that when people think about this question of demonstrating value, they do jump to the hard metrics. They're worried and they're kind of white knuckle thinking, I need a dashboard. I need I yes. need to show you know, <laughs> I need a graph. I need a chart. I need a chart, damn yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really interesting, I think, for people to hear that that actually, you know, obviously, you know, you will need that. And you need to get good at that. And obviously, as you know, we're increasingly digitized and, and all those things, you need to be fluent in the data. But before you get there, there's that, that first step, the soft skills you're talking about. So I think that that's a really interesting insight. So, so thanks for sharing that. And I, I guess I had a more of a question around your process for writing the book. When you were doing it, were you finding that you were learning a whole bunch of stuff in the process of researching or was it more just kind of crystallizing what you already knew? It was more of the latter. So I was taking things that I was already familiar with or knew and really reorganizing them into book form. But I, I didn't just sit there and put down my own thoughts. There's a lot of footnotes. There's a lot of research. I did what any writer would do, I think, is go out and say, well, what are other people thinking about how you market the legal department? And are there other ideas? I didn't, I don't have a monopoly on ideas on how to show value. And there were a lot of great articles and other resources where people have also weighed in on, on the issue. And so I, I had the ability to absorb that, cherry pick that, and to some extent, well, how does this line up with my experience? And in some places, actually take those concepts and, and blow them out in a way that, oh, okay, now I know what this person's talking about. I actually did that. I didn't realize, though now I do, how much value that was generating. And that's one of the problems I think a lot of in-house lawyers face with showing value is understanding that there are value, things of value that the legal department does are just strewn about the, the building, so to speak, and you have to just go pick them up. 
but you don't recognize them. You're looking at the, you're looking for the wrong thing and you're overlooking all these other value adds. And that was one of the parts of the book is how do I bring all that into a way where you can kind of lay it out and in-house lawyers can go, oh, I didn't realize how valuable that was, but you're right. So that's, so again, mostly my experience, but I did, I did learn a lot from other people. And, and I appreciate that there are a lot of other really great commentators and writers out there on, on in-house issues. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised that that's kind of how you went about it, because I don't think there's a lot of literature on, on this in existence, because as you went through in that, in the first chapter, the in-house team, in-house departments haven't been around for centuries, <laughs> relatively new phenomenon. And then it's not like they're on the front page of the Harvard Business Business Review every other day. So there's right. not, you know, you're probably one of the more prolific writers on the topic. <laughs> I don't know who else would kind of be up there. If I, do, if I do a search, I have to say it is weird when if I Google something and it, my stuff comes up, right, is number one or two, whatever in the, in the listings. But you're, and that's, I did look for, has someone already written this book uh, on how to show the value? Because I, I, if, if I was going to write a book, I, I certainly didn't want to just have another book on something that has been written about to death and I couldn't find anything. So you're absolutely right. There's not, not a lot of people write on this, but one of the really neat things that I have seen over the past two or three years, I see this a lot on LinkedIn and I also see it now in, in book form is in-house lawyers writing about their own experiences in a, in a more organized fashion on LinkedIn. Some of those people are very gracious and say, well, you inspired me with your blog, and I, but I want to write about this, which is great. It's awesome. Some of those people have written books. So there's a, a, a really, there's a growing body of writing book form, LinkedIn form, blog form on being an in-house lawyer that you're absolutely right. Wasn't there 10 years ago. And I find myself in competition now with a lot of other writers, but I love that. It makes me think longer and harder about what do I want to write about and what am I going to write about that's going to add to that body of work in a way that isn't just, you know, writing about something that everyone else has, has written about. But I find it exciting. I think that competition makes things better. And in the marketplace of ideas, duking it out in a, in a positive way, there's, there's a big community and we stay in touch with each other on the side. And uh, I find that just to be really energizing and, and a really neat spinoff of this whole effort. I totally agree with you. I think it is a growing, it's a, it's a growing area, people writing about their experience in-house. But I think we could comfortably say you were one of the pioneers in that area. To jump back to the topic at hand, what do you, what's the biggest thing do you think that legal teams, in-house teams get wrong in demonstrating their value? The first would be what we, we just talked about, over-reliance on metrics. And the second one, as I think about it, is not taking advantage of the metrics and what I mean by that when, is when I was first asked to do KPIs, my first question was, what's a KPI, <laughs> right? What are you talking about? <laughs> do you have any examples of what these are? Is there anything in particular you want from me? And it was, a lot of, it was like a lot of things 
from the administrative side, they get tasked to the legal department, you know, HR mandates, budget mandates, whatever the case is, where they just ask you something, but they can't tell you how to do it because they're used to dealing with the business. And again, legal's this special creature in a way. So they come to me and say, we need KPIs from the legal department for our big KPI chart. They can't tell me what they want. They can't even tell me, give me an example. And you can do two things, one of two things. My younger self, I would just be pissed off because damn it, this is another unfunded mandate in a way. They want me to do something, but they're not telling me how to do it. This is going to take up a lot of my time and I have to figure this all out myself. So I'm mad and I can, I can be grumpy. I can just do the bare minimum to get something across. Or you can do what older Sterling figured out is, huh, they're asking me to tell a story about the legal department, but they're not telling me what they want or how they want. Well, okay, I'm going to give them the best damn story about the legal department they've ever read. And as long as I'm not lying and making it up, right, I can tell the story however I want. So you can be damn sure the KPIs reflected very positive things about the legal department. We're telling stories about how efficient we were, how much we were accomplishing, what the achievements were, how we were doing on budget. And if they were happy, great, because I got to keep telling a good story about the legal department, tying in completely into how do you show the value? Every once in a while, they may say, hey, we want you to focus in on this. And I can tell you that the only thing better than having a great KPI to show is a KPI where you're not succeeding if you have a plan to fix it. The business loves the plan to fix the problem. And I noticed this when I sat in on a lot of different meetings as general counsel of business presentations. And they would say, oh, you know what? We're not meeting this metric. It's under whatever, it's 10% under or 100 under. But here's our plan to get that metric back. And everyone's applauding. Oh, that's a great plan. We love that plan. Thank you for the plan. That's very thoughtful. So I'm thinking, huh, you can, you can fail. But as long as you have a plan to fix it, everyone thinks you're awesome. So Every once in a while, I would slip in a KPI where we're not golden. Oh, it's yellow. But here's my plan to fix it. Oh, hallelujah. Sterling's got a plan (laughs) to fix it. That's great. Go do that. Because they want to see that even you recognize that things aren't all green or whatever, whatever your metric is, but they're also that you're you're bringing a solution to the table. You're going to go fix it. And so I think... Over-reliance on metrics, but then not taking advantage of what are they actually asking me to do? And if they're not telling me specifically what I have to report on or what I'm limited to report on, then I'm going to go out and tell a story that I want to tell about the legal department. It will be true, but it will be very positive. So that storytelling aspect is a superpower all lawyers have. You just don't always exercise it. And this is this is when they're asking you to tell them about the legal department, that is your time to tell the story and be a storyteller and, and put the spin on it in, in the positive way. I absolutely love that. And I feel like you could definitely have a career in politics as a next step because that feel, 
<laughs> like, yeah, quite an artful way of, of handling a, a confusing challenge. <laughs> so that's brilliant. So, so my, my kind of final question before we wrap up then was, you know, you mentioned things that, that in-house teams should be doing and, and what they probably get wrong and, and maybe this might overlap. But I was wondering, is there, what is the hardest thing to get right? Or, or is that what we just talked about? If I had to pick the hardest thing, I would say it's not recognizing the importance of the perception of the legal department and how the legal department is perceived by the business, which can be very different than the reality. But for whatever reason, the business doesn't think the legal department is adding value or thinks the legal department is difficult to deal with or their deal. You know, you know, all the lawyer jokes, right? The department of no, where legal department, where work goes to die, contracts go to die, like the elephant graveyard of contracts. So touting the legal department in a positive way, making sure the business knows what the accomplishments are is hard for lawyers. And one simple thing, I'll just give you an example. I was general counsel of Travelocity, which is a travel website in the US. And I had all my lawyers, we started to add at the bottom of our signature, not just legal department, the department of yes. And what I wanted was anyone from in the business who started to see that, they were going to start to see the department of yes. And people would ask me, what does that mean, department of yes? It goes, when you bring us something, we are going to find a way to get it done. Just a subtle bit of marketing, just a subtle twist on something that you don't really think about, your signature block in your email. But if we can put our message in there of how we want to be perceived, that's going to be viewed hundreds, if not thousands of times a month. And we're going to eventually start to implant that into people's head. We are the department of yes. And that's a very positive way. So that perception to come out. And then I think the other thing that I would say is the partnering with the business. Again, lawyers as these solitary creatures, even within the legal department, we're not necessarily good at at partnering up. We have our assignment. We're going to go off and do it. We're going to bring it back. We're going to talk about it, whatever the case is, but we don't necessarily talk with each other, even though someone might have a ton of experience. And I, what I really enjoyed doing is not only talking to the business, what's important to you? How can we be a better partner? How can we be more strategic in how we're helping the business? That That's a great conversation. But if you're in a legal department and there are you know, four or five others or 10 others, or maybe a hundred others, I don't know. Have you ever spoken to them about, you know, what do you think we should be doing in terms of adding value? What do you think our highest and best use is to the business? Everyone's going to have a viewpoint. It's just rare that we ever ask, certainly even among our colleagues. Yeah, we know what they're, we know what they did over the weekend, but we never asked them, how did you get here? What was your career path? And what do you enjoy most about working in the legal department? What do you not like? You know, are there things that I can do to help you? Having those conversations in partnering and getting out of the solitary beast mode and into one where you're just really curious about the people, not only outside of the department and what they find useful, but, but within the department. And that is hard because that's just not how we're trained. That's not our natural inclination. But if you can break through that and just say, hey, let's go get coffee for half an hour. And I want to ask you just a few questions. I've never had anyone say no to that. I've never had anyone ever say, no, 
not going to talk to you, <laughs> not going to tell you how I got here, not going to tell you what I think is important. They love to do it. And you just have to ask the question and sit back and it's all going to come out. So there's, I guess that's that therapist of listening mode that I've found is really, is a, is a great tool. Just asking a question and then sitting back and listening to the answer. Brilliant. I'm just, I'm very much in active listening mode at the moment. So I'm happy to absorb what you're saying. And I, I did wonder, because we're, we're going to wrap up now, do you think, you know, anything key that we've missed? Because we, obviously we've talked about what, what you wrote in the book with the evolution and the soft skills and then the metrics and then how people need to be careful about the perception of the department and embrace the metrics. Do you think anything big that we missed before we, before we finish? I think the one thing I would add, and I do, I write about this briefly in the book, but I'll just highlight it. And that is, if you distill the mission of the legal department down to its bare essence, it's we enhance value creation and we work to minimize value destruction. And everything that you do as an in-house lawyer, if you look at it from the most basic concept, does it fit in one of those buckets? I am working to create value. I am working to prevent value from being destroyed. And if it doesn't fit in one of those two buckets, ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is this really the most important thing I should be doing today? Sometimes it's administrative, right? I have to do reviews or whatever, but most, most of your day is going to fit into one of those two buckets. And then what is the most important thing on my list that would create value? That's what I should go do. Or this is the biggest threat for value destruction. That's what I should go do. And if you do that consistently day after day, you're going to find yourself naturally aligning with the priorities of the business. And that's where the real value is from the legal department. It's focusing on what matters to the business, what drives the business strategy. And we're focused on those things 80% of the time. And that 80-20 rule is going to get you just a ton of goodwill and generate a ton of value. And the business will recognize it, especially if you get over the shyness and say, here's what we've done. Here's our accomplishments. So that's, that's my last thing I would say. Absolutely brilliant. That's been so wonderful to speak with you, Sterling, and listen to all your insights from such a long, successful and decorated career and I know it's still going, but to no, no. <laughs> and I know our listeners, I, I, yeah. I know our listeners will really appreciate. And I'm going to absolutely add in the links to your website to the latest oh, books, so people can can access access all those links. Oh, thanks. Yeah, if any any listeners uh, connect, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, please do. I love I love connecting with in-house lawyers. I, I really do. So I encourage anyone just to just to connect. I will I will accept. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Sterling. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. So, Sterling, one thing I was interested in is outside of the legal world, you've got a variety of interesting passions. You're, I, I feel like you're a bit of a renaissance man. You've got lots of things that you're writing about. <laughs> I, do, I do have lots of little bits and pieces, don't I? <laughs> and so the books that you've produced so far, you've got one on American football, on NFL and one on slow cooking, some are tangentially related through somehow. But I was wondering, the, the NFL, is that, well, who's your team first? Who's your team? I am a New York Jets fan. Even though I grew up in Nebraska, I, when I was a kid, Joe Namath was right. 
you know, the be all and end all of NFL football. And not only that, I love the Jets helmets, which you can see the green one back there. That's the, that's yeah. the, and that's the Jets helmet. Oh, I just love the Jets logo. And so I was always a Jets fan from, from a young age. They are so bad. It's tough, but I root for the, I root for the Jets. My, my wife is a Cowboys fan, Dallas Cowboys. Obviously I live here. So they're number two. <laughs> And and then the book, so it goes through the history of the NFL. So that's from the basically the origin story of the NFL. Yeah, nineteen twenty through I think it was twenty fifteen, summer twenty fifteen when it when it came out. So whatever the last that twenty fifteen Super Bowl would have been the last one. And I so what happened is I was reading a, a book about the nineteen twenty five Pottsville Maroons, which was an NFL franchise in the twenties here, here in, here in the U S and it was about how the old NFL, the title was decided by percentage point percentage of winning and the teams, they had no set schedule. So they would just schedule two or three games a week. They would play high school teams or college teams, or just a bunch of guys from the meat packing plant. And then they would claim the wins. And there was this big, there was this big scandal about who was truly the the champion in 1925. And that was really interesting to me. But what was really interesting were the Pottsville Maroons, the Dayton Triangles, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. There were all these teams that don't exist. And I go, I wonder whatever happened to these teams. And and how did that, how did the NFL evolve from basically small town America to the behemoth that it is today? And I looked like I did for the value book. I looked, has anyone written about this? Nope. So I said, well, this is right after I had retired from Sabre. I said, well, I'll write it. So we just sat down and started researching the NFL, the history of the NFL. So it it just walks you through the years of teams that came in. Were they, you know, did they fold? Did the new ones, when there were rival leagues, did they merge? What were some of the highlights of the year? It was fun to do. It kept me busy. And it also was a, you know, how do you, how do you write a book? I'd never written a book before. So lots of really fun, fun lessons learned, learned there. Well, it's, so it's as, as a somewhat outsider perspective, the, the NFL is an amazing, it's an amazing tentpole within American culture. Like there was, there was an article I read about the, you know, the most watched TV show in a given year. And over the past 50 years, it's basically always the Super Bowl final. Potentially, sometimes it's a political debate, but that's, it's crazy to me. It's it's so big, yes. and the size of college football is mind boggling. Yes, football is. I, I it has from the six nineteen sixties on truly captured the imagination of the American culture. It used to be baseball. It was baseball all the way up through the fifties, and I. From my experience, what happened is football is the perfect game for television. It is framed perfectly. It's colorful. There's action all the time. Unlike baseball, I mean, baseball, you can sit there for 30 minutes and nothing happens, right? People are throwing a ball and they're missing and it goes on. But as American culture changed to be more, I don't know, more about energy, more short, shorter attention spans, football just fit in, in that window. And the other thing that football did that I think some of the, some of the rival leagues have done recently, 
but football started early is they split all the money, league money equally. And the draft is the worst team goes first. And when you do that, it creates a level of, of parity that all the teams have some ability to compete for the championship. And in baseball, for the longest time, it was the freaking Yankees and the Dodgers. And everybody else was maybe occasionally they got in and that's okay. But over time, people like, well, you know, my team never really has a chance. So why am I paying attention to this? In football, any given Sunday, you can have an upset. Any, any year, your team can go from worst to Super Bowl champion. Philadelphia Eagles this year, they didn't win, but they were one of the crappiest teams last year. Then the next season, they're in the Super Bowl. So everyone has hope. And that hope, I think, really attracts people to, to watch. So yeah, it's amazing how far apart it is from basically anything else in, in the sports world or even from a television. It's usually the top 10 shows for the year are eight of them are NFL football games, including the Super Bowl. It's, it's mean, mind boggling. It is mind boggling. And, you know, so I've actually agreed with everything you've said so far, but it, how it's pretty, it's too long, isn't it? Doesn't it like an average game take like two hours? Oh, it's three hours. Yeah. But it's three hours every time, unless there's overtime, which is pretty rare. So you can, and there are plenty of breaks because there's lots of commercials. There's the halftime. So yeah, the actual game is only 60 minutes of action, but it's played over three hours with all the sideline reporting, injury timeouts, and it goes, it goes quickly. So if you, I guess if you grew up with it, it, it you know, and it's interesting to get the perspective of, of someone else. Cause I've, I've watched a lot of Australian rules football, which is a whole different game, you know, very, like, I don't know, rugby and professional wrestling all, all mashed up. And that's, that's Australian rules football. And, you know, I guess when you watch a sport, like I find the Premier League football is interesting, but oh my God, you know, one nil, <laughs> there's, where's the excitement? And you can hear the announcer screaming and yelling because, you know, the guy kicked the ball out of bounds or something. Jordan uh, American. Right. But I understand someone else, someone else viewing our sports as going, yeah, it seems a little long. But for us, like, yeah, perfect length. I can watch a game. I know how long it's going to take me. I know I'm going to see some good stuff. And then I can go off and about, about and do my business. But I, but I got that window. Well, this is a very dangerous topic because we're potentially going to offend multitudes of people here. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but I do. Have you, okay, here's my question. Have you ever watched Rugby Union before? The all, like all black. Yes. Oh, okay. What do you think yes. about that? Oh, yes. I, uh, the hardest thing for rugby, my father-in-law played rugby, not professionally in the U S that's not, maybe that is a thing now, but it wasn't. So when I, I saw rugby in college, it was a club sport, not a, not an official varsity sport. So I kind of know what's going on. I find it <clears throat> actually pretty exciting but you don't, it's not on at least American television very frequently. And if it is, it's on late, really late, yeah. 2 a.m. So you, you have to think ahead to record it. But I find rugby pretty damn exciting. And the fact that you play without helmets and you do the big scrum right at the very beginning yeah. and you're passing the ball back. And you could see 
some of the genesis of American football out of what was a very popular sport in America in the late 1880s, which was rugby. And our football came out of, out of rugby. And I think in rugby, right, you touch, you go across the line, you touch the ball down yeah. on yeah. the ground to score. That is the touchdown. That's, that's the title of what are the main scoring element in American football is it's a touchdown. But you don't touch the ball down like you do, like you do in rugby, but you can see those elements there. So it is really fascinating. And, you know, when you do see it on television, when you get it, and especially when the all black blacks play, when I was at Sabre, we had a big contingent from Australia. So it was kind of our adopted company team were the all blacks. And when people would go to Australia to visit, I never got to go, but they would always, you know, try to, if there was a rugby game going on, try to get a game where the all blacks were, were playing. Yeah. Well, I should just say All Blacks are New Zealand and Australia. New Zealand, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But, but they, so, were, they were they were they were usually over there. Uh, yeah, you could get there. Yeah. Well, the All Blacks oh, no, are I like I don't know. They're probably like the Yankees back in the day. Like they're the most dominant sporting team of all time. Potentially, yeah, I think. I think yeah. they got. I think they lost the. Didn't they lose the most current World Championship? They did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. lost. They yeah. Lost, they did. They lost uh, to they England. Did. I was trying to. Yeah. England. That's right. Yeah. New Zealand, you know, underrated. If you have New Zealand listeners, so I love Flight of the Concords. Big, big split ends, crowded house fan. So, you know, keep oh, yeah. coming. I love Australian television. We have BritBox, which shows shows from the UK and Australia. Oh, yeah. So we, we have lots of, God, what's the, oh, Glitch. The Australian television show Glitch, which is now probably seven seven years old, about these people rising from the dead. Um, wow. and re re-engaging in society. So they're not zombies, right? They're not eating brains or oh, right. coming back as they were. It's a credible series. If you haven't watched it, it's, I highly recommend it. <laughs> well, watch Glitch because it's just a damn good, damn good television show. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. I'm, I'm busy watching the new season of Succession at the moment. That's where my, yeah, we, 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 we watched the second one last night. We were yeah. big, big Succession fans. Yep. Great show. It's so good. Okay, well, I've, I've, I've monopolized your time entirely, Sterling. So, I, as pleasure, Mark, I enjoyed it a lot. So, anytime, anytime, yeah. you want me to come back you know, next year? We'll do. We'll do it again. Yeah, great. <laughs>